Hey everyone, thank you so much for joining us on Mission Driven this week. I don't know about all of you, but if you're listening to this podcast, I'm sure you've also been following what's up with Twitter post at Elon Musk Takeover. It's been a chaotic time, and very recently, notably at least to me and to people like Nell Thomas, who we've spoken to at the beginning of this podcast series, Twitter has just relaxed its political advertising policy. What does that mean? Well, Twitter actually hasn't allowed political ads in a while. Jack in 2019 tweeted, We've made the decision to stop all political advertising on Twitter globally. We believe political message reach should be earned, not bought. Well, that's just been reversed. However, the winner in all this so far may be Meta. We've all stopped speaking about Facebook and the woes of its platform, but this moment is probably fleeting for them. The 2024 election is going to start ramping up soon, and focus will return to their platform. It's also very possible that Donald Trump's Facebook and Instagram accounts might be reinstated this month. With all that as a backdrop, I want to introduce you all to Laura Edelson. She leads NYU's Cybersecurity for Democracy Project, a research-based effort to expose online threats to our social fabric. I'm going to let her tell us a bit more. So, Laura, hey, welcome. Happy New Year. Could you explain to our listeners what the Cybersecurity for Democracy Project is? Thanks for having me, Rafi. So my team at Cybersecurity for Democracy, we are computer scientists, we are cybersecurity researchers, but we specifically study what I think of as information attacks or disinformation as it is spread on typically social media, but also through the open web. We hear the term disinformation all the time. It's also becoming a fairly popular term in the press. But the term information attack is a new, interesting phrase that I haven't heard before. Can you say a bit more about the types of attacks or disinformation that you're investigating? What are the kinds of things you're seeing? What should the listeners or I be scared of out there? I think very often the conversation around disinformation that makes it out into the popular press is very much the conversation coming out of, frankly, social science, which is a really important vein of research. People who understand exactly how people who are crafting disinformation do it in such a way as to appeal to particular audiences. What my team at NYU studies is we're trying to better understand why and how disinformation spreads so well on social media. Why do content recommendation algorithms recommend it so much? You know, what are the particular features of disinformation? How can we better distinguish it from factual content? And the reason that we study this from a from a cybersecurity perspective, from a computer science perspective, is as much as we need to understand the effects that disinformation has on people and how we can you know, harden our social institutions against disinformation. We also need to understand how this content interacts with algorithms. And we need to understand how to make our algorithms themselves safer so that they do not promote harmful content. Okay, so the popular press is talking about it from a social science perspective, and you're doing this all from a computer science perspective. Got it. You've recently testified in front of Congress, though, to provide recommendations to them on how they should be thinking about all this. Are recommendations of those sorts, not just to Congress, but also to social media companies and others, is that what the output of your work looks like? 
a lot of our work over the last couple of years has just been, frankly, very straightforward computer science research measuring some of the ways that mis- and disinformation spreads that has allowed us to make recommendations to say, okay, there's a very clear security vulnerability here. Social media company, you can you can make your system better very easily by taking this step. So we've made recommendations around the way that social media companies vet their advertisers, the kinds of targeting parameters that they allow, the way that they display disclosure strings to users. We've also made recommendations on certain aspects of content recommendation algorithms when we found you know, things about user engagement. So these are the kinds of things that we've done so far. Where I think our work is going next and some of the things that I'm most excited about, I think we are finally getting a better handle on the relative role that content recommendation versus content moderation will need to play. And I think this is this is why we are moving more toward trying to better understand recommendation algorithms themselves. And we are working to understand how to make those recommendation algorithms safer. Understanding the recommendation engines themselves sounds like a lot of what you have to do is reverse engineer other people's works. I suppose it's because it's not like the platforms are super transparent about what their content recommendation system is doing. Well, my life would be a lot easier if I didn't and if platforms were more transparent about their recommendation algorithms, but they're not. Something that was really helpful for our work, although not usable for research in and of itself, is when the Facebook files came out and we got at least some internal documentation about Facebook's content recommendation algorithm, because it gave us an idea of what kind of features were in use. And that was really informative. Unfortunately, yeah, a lot of what I do is trying to reverse engineer the algorithms that exist, that if I could just have them would make this process easier. But unfortunately, this is the world in which we live. And this is where I think we are really in quite a bind because the people and the institutions that have the easiest access to the data and the algorithms, who are in the best position to understand what those algorithms, what those systems are doing, have almost an incentive to not look at that data and to not dig into why those recommendation algorithms maybe are sometimes recommending harmful content because maybe the answers would require them to make changes that would be unprofitable. And these are for-profit businesses. It's a hard position. Well, I mean, you don't ask questions you don't want to know the answers to, right? I think this is getting to something that I have a real appreciation for the bind the people who work inside these companies are in because I used to work in big tech companies. I used to really struggle with that dilemma of, you know, wondering is something that we're doing causing harm and knowing that my management would not look kindly on it if I went and found the answer and I should probably just not turn over that rock. And that sucked. You know, that was a really crummy feeling. That was a crummy feeling to go to work with every day. And that's a lot of why, frankly, I left industry and went and did a PhD instead. Can we talk a second about the origin story how you decided to do your PhD work in this specifically, and how you evolved that work into what you're doing now? Oh, that's a good question. I think I have always thought that engineers, again, people who build things, 
should have an active role in thinking about what should be built and how the things we build should be used. I think that very often the people doing the building are just the only people in the room when the question, should we do this, gets asked. And that means that I think folks who work in tech, software engineers, we have a responsibility to think about what the social implications of our work will be. Because if we wait until the the lawyers and the philosophers ask those questions, it's way too late. We've already built it. So I think that's a mindset that I've always had. I think that conviction is very much what drove me to, you know, to pursue a PhD because I, I was working on a lot of the problems that were inherent in managing really large volumes in da- of data. I was working on some of the problems of applied machine learning, and I began to ask the question of like, should we be doing this <laughs> in a lot of cases? And I wasn't loving the answer that I was getting in- internally. I wasn't, my values were not always aligning with the work that I was doing. And so I decided to do a PhD kind of to give myself time to really think about what should be done and how to do it as well as possible. And the way that I started working on this project is that, like a lot of people, after the 2016 election, I really worried about the state of our democracy when we learned so much about the Russian interference in the 2016 election, I think I found it a really frightening prospect that social media ads were actively promoting really harmful and divisive content that was outright false. I really thought that that was an outright threat to democracy. If we can't trust the systems that that are feeding us, spoon-feeding us information, if we can't trust those systems to be safe, how can we have, how can we have a public discourse? I don't think we, I don't think we can. And so the other thing that I thought was that fundamentally the thing that was going wrong was the systems that were promoting content to people. And I thought a lot of the discourse I was seeing was about you know, well, isn't it terrible that the Russians were doing this? Or, well, what if it's domestic actors who do this next? And I was seeing less focus on why was Facebook promoting this content in the first place? Why was all of this being actively spread by the platforms themselves? I was definitely seeing some concern about the platform, but it was it was more diffuse. And so when the data first became available in 2018, I thought it was a really important problem to tackle that could really only be tackled by computer science. And that's why we started working on it. We recently spoke to Ariel Ekblah, who runs the Aurelia Institute, and she scoffed at the idea of doing her work within academia. And similarly, a lot of people we spoke to on this podcast have started a nonprofit, and we're about to speak to some who have started for-profit companies. You're literally the first person we're talking to who has been doing this work inside an academic setting. Why are you? So there's a couple of reasons why I think my work needs to be inside academia. One, for a lot of the problems that I'm talking about, why does this content spread so well? What can we do to stop it? What can we do to make recommendation algorithms safer? We don't have easy answers. We don't have answers at all. These are open areas of research that we need to study to get answers. And open-ended research, I really think, 
is best done in academia. It's really difficult for nonprofits to take on these open-ended research questions that we don't even know what the answer is going to look like. We don't know if any research project we begin will be successful. I start a lot of projects that don't go anywhere, that fail. And that's just the nature of novel research. A lot of things you try will fail. A small number will succeed. You don't get the successes unless you can take really big swings. And academia is set up for that kind of novel research, that kind of, frankly, low success rate of things you try to things that succeed. So I think that's part of it. I think the other part is something else that academia is really good at is speaking truth to power. Rafi, I know you're familiar with the the legal argy-bargy I got in with Facebook last year, but it was really difficult. It was a really hard and crappy time when I was spending 20 hours a week on calls with my lawyers because fundamentally, like Facebook didn't like my research findings and they threatened me and my team at NYU legally because of it. When researchers ask questions of powerful institutions, powerful institutions will protect themselves. That's understandable. That's in their interests. And this is one of the reasons that universities exist, so that we can ask questions of powerful institutions and the people doing the asking will also be protected by powerful institutions. My work is overseen by an institutional review board that makes sure that I follow academic norms and ethics. And as long as I stay in those lines, they will protect me and they will make sure that when Facebook sicked a team of lawyers on me, that my work was allowed to continue, that I wasn't shut down, I wasn't kicked out. And I think those are the kinds of protections that universities are set up to provide. Laura, you have to recount the story because it's such a truth to power argument. It's so amazing to me that a small technology project can get the ire of such a large internet behemoth. So maybe for those listening, can you give us a bit more details about that legal entanglement you found yourself in? Last year, in 2021, my team published several big reports about our findings around misinformation and security on Facebook. And Facebook eventually objected to one of our research methods. We have a browser extension that allows people to anonymously contribute data to us. Facebook claimed that This somehow violated their policies for other people to donate data to us, and they kicked us off their platform and also threatened us pretty seriously legally with lawsuits that they never actually filed, to be clear. Yeah, I don't know what else to say. There's a lot I still can't say about that episode, but yeah, it was a tough time. Laura, your stories are so interesting and impactful. Who do you think feels the impact of your work the most? Earlier, you mentioned that sometimes it's just engineers in a room building things. And engineers are literally the ones with the superpower of having their fingers on the actual keyboard, writing out the actual code. Everyone else is just talking. Is your hope to have an impact on those engineers? Is your hope to have impact on the companies they work for? Is your hope to have impact on society? Is it all of the above? I think that social media is rapidly becoming the place that public discourse happens. I think 
social media is where we form the zeitgeist. This is where we figure out what, as a society, we think about any important public issue. And I think that the public square plays a vital role in democracies. People need to vote. The way they decide what their vote is going to be is by talking to their friends, talking to their neighbors, thinking about how what they're hearing jibes with how they feel about issues. If we have gotten to a place where the place where public discourse happens is fundamentally prone to spreading mis- and disinformation, which my research indicates that it is, then I really think that poses an existential threat to democracy. And if I think that, which I do, then I think that figuring out how to make social media platforms safer for discourse and more resilient against disinformation attacks, that is one of the most vital public health missions of our time. And it's one that I am actually in a position to contribute to. So yes, it is my goal to try to make society at least our society, a little bit safer, a little bit more resilient to these kinds of threats, maybe to make this cornerstone of our democracy, of just public discourse, a little bit safer. I think that the thing you're talking about, about engineers and how we think about our role and the role that we play, what our responsibility is and what we build, I am absolutely hoping to contribute to what I see as a cultural shift that's going on. I really think that there are a lot of folks who are looking up from the work that they're doing, and they're asking more questions about how their work is being used. I know that I really struggled with that. I worked for companies that built infrastructure for the stock market for for many years, And I know that I had a moment after the last financial crash where I I looked up from that work and I just thought like, oh my God, all this math and all of these compression algorithms sure are fun, but uh, did my work actually contribute to the collapse of our financial system? And how do I feel about that? Uh, And the answer was not very good. And so I, you know, I changed companies. I tried to do something else. And then again, I looked up and I thought like, oh gosh, I'm working on all these applications of machine learning. But when I look at what they're actually being applied to do, I think maybe it's just making a lot of things more expensive and worse for a lot of people. I feel really bad about that too. And something that was happening is like, that wasn't just happening to me. I have heard from a lot of people who worked on similar systems that at a certain point, you can't look away from how your work is being used. And I think that is a cultural shift in the tech community that is underway. I mean, that's a heavy burden to carry, but not many people go from feeling that burden to action. Why do you think you're one of those people who did it? First, I think that there are quite a few people who think about that burden and go to action. I think not everyone takes the path I took of of leaving industry and deciding to do a PhD. I think there are a lot of people who feel that way and they stay within industry, they stay within companies, and they try to make those companies better places. They try to make those companies less harmful to society. 
And we need those people to do that. There are other people who, you know, maybe they transition from working for a big tech company to working for either a nonprofit or they're still working on software, but they're working for a company that does something totally different. And I think we need those people too. I am pretty sure that maybe some of my earlier work was bad for the world. And I think once I came to that conclusion, I didn't feel like I was neutral. I felt like maybe I was the bad guy. (laughs) And for me, once I came to that conclusion, the right answer wasn't sitting on the sidelines. The right answer was trying to fix some of the things that I thought maybe I had contributed to. Well, you're clearly not the bad guy. No, when I was at the DNC, I would stand up at DNC meetings across the country, especially when I first joined, and would explain my background. You know, I was at one point a VP of engineering at Twitter. And then I would apologize for having created the platform that created President Trump. So I completely understand that. It's almost a need to atone. I think what's so hard about this is that many other professions, if you are training to be a doctor, if you are training to be a lawyer, you are explicitly handed, here are some tools with with which you can think through the ethics of the work that you're doing. And I don't know about you, but when I did a computer science undergrad, I did not get that manual. And I think that what I did get was, here's how you make sure that you do what your boss wants to do and that you abstract away as much as possible the end result of what you do and just focus on this ultimate good of making the customer happy. And that toolkit of how to evaluate what you are doing. And I think also the way that Silicon Valley in particular, like that corporate culture is so framed on whatever you're doing, you're saving the world. I think that that makes it really hard for people to think critically about the net result their work is having. But again, I think this is something that's changing. And I think that, you know, I think engineers should ask questions about the contribution, not just to their company, not just to their customers, but the contribution their work has to society as a whole. And I I think that more and more folks are graduating from college thinking about that right away. They aren't waking up 10 years later and saying, wait a second, did I, did I do something bad? I didn't get that manual either. Software engineers are building the infrastructure and the fabric that holds our society together. And so to your point, they deserve some accountability and responsibility to what their fabric really does. Laura, can I ask what drives you every day to continue to do this work? I mean, you finished your PhD at this point. You've been sued or threatened to have lawsuits against you. So at this point, doctor, what drives you every day to actually keep doing this work? It's so much fun. And it's so interesting. Something that I did not fully understand until you know, I got to just do whatever I was most interested and most passionate about was, man, it's awful for your work-life balance because my work, like trying to understand why, why do, why does social media accelerate mis- and disinformation? Why is it so appealing to end users that they engage with it? 
you know, how can we build algorithms that, are, you know, are safer and prioritize quality? This is just the most interesting thing I can think of to do. And this is the great thing about being in academia is that whatever you think is the most interesting thing to do, you're told, like, go do that. And I feel like where I'm really fortunate is the thing that I think is just the most interesting thing to do. Other people also think is interesting and important. So that's been really helpful to my work. But this is just, honest to God, the most interesting thing I can think of to do. I do this all the time. I, every time I think like, oh, could I pick up a video game or do I want to look at some more data? I want to look at more data. It's more interesting. So the thing that is super motivating to me is my work because I get to pick what I work on and this is the most interesting thing. So this is something else that's really awesome about academia is you are trusted to have what's, what we usually call problem taste. And uh, yeah, this is this is all I want to do. Okay, so translate that into advice for me for a second. Imagine I'm a software engineer listening to us right now and having that epiphany that, wait, I actually do have a responsibility for the things I build. What should that software engineer do? So I think the answer to that depends slightly on that person's risk tolerance is is probably a big one. I obviously took a really big risk of, you know, quitting the tech industry and getting a PhD. Obviously, I prepared for that. I saved money for years. You know, it was part of my now husband and my life plan. We knew we were going to do this. We knew we were going to take some time and and it's worked out for us. So I would say, you know, thing one, figure out your risk tolerance. You know, figure out are you doing this as a weekend project? Are you maybe getting a job in another industry? Or are you, you know, doing what I did and packing it in and going and learning new things for five years? Once you have a sense of your risk tolerance, I think what I did is I looked at my skills and I looked at what I was interested in and I looked at the, you know, I, I looked at the intersection of those things. So a lot of my background was on figuring out how to manage really large volumes of data. How do you move it around? How do you organize it so you can ask important questions? How do you, again, apply machine learning? Those were the things I had expertise in. And I looked for a problem where those skills were in demand and easily applicable. And you know, one of the problems that was immediately apparent when data started coming out of platforms is there was so much of it. It wasn't immediately obvious what the pattern in the in those data were. So I knew this was something where, you know, my skills would help me get to an answer really quickly. Thinking about what you can do and thinking about where that has the biggest delta. Like where is what you can do lacking and how can you apply it? Laura, like I said in the beginning, I'm always in awe. I'm actually even more in awe of what you've been up to after this conversation. So thank you for doing it. Thank you for effectively taking on one of the biggest corporations on the planet right now. And keep going. I'll be here cheering you on. Thanks. I am always in awe of Laura. Next time on Mission Driven, we're going data-driven. We're talking to Mac Roser, the founder behind Our World in Data. If you haven't seen the site, check it out. He and his team does intensive data-driven research 
to help others bring data sets to life via the tools they build. If you even look carefully, you'll have noticed that President Trump, at the height of the pandemic, used to carry a graph from our world of data in his pocket. I'll note, he misinterpreted the graph, but that's a different story. See you next time.